Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. As we begin, what I'm doing for the interim time here in the uh, Lenten season is 40 days of reconciliation. And part of that was to take seven um, blanket exercises to seven different communities. And with those communities, draw in a number of other, others that were in the area that could come and share, either from other United Churches or other churches in the area, the Anglican Church in some cases, in other cases, Presbyterian Church and others that come to visit, to hear, and to witness the journey that we are on through Lent. And at this time, we think about the origin of that blanket exercise from the Kairos group, which is an interdenominational group. It was, ba- it was a, constructed as a faith-based practice to bring to us wisdom and understanding from elders to share that with those who are newly hearing about the residential schools. And the focus of that process was particularly around acknowledgement of the residential schools and the atrocities that happened, the genocide that happened. And that's an odd word to hear for many church communities, to think that they were involved in genocide. And yet, as we step through this and understand the deliberate nature of the church's involvement, of the government's involvement, and of our community involvement, It's a reckoning to remember that there are broken relationships and that we must take time to learn and be part of that circle. I'm going to ask our uh, volunteers to come forward and to stand here in front of the uh, chancel. And I'll ask our first reader to come up as I introduce this first segment. What we're going to do first is to light this candle. This is a candle of, an orange candle, respecting the children who were taken, the children whose lives mattered in this space. And to remember there was a reason for their demise. In this blanket exercise, we begin with relationship. And there's a mic. Building new relationships in the diaspora of people traveling across the plains. So you have many nations coming here to this area that had to find a place because they had been displaced in the east. And so their mindset was one of worry and fear and they were greeted by our people, the Assiniboine people, the Nakoda people, to welcome them into this space and into our relationship with God, to know that they are also included in God's wisdom. So we'll have our first reader. In the days prior to the coming of the white man, we lived a nomadic way of life hunting, fishing, and gathering from the abundance of this good land. They were literally millions of buffalo roaming on the western plains along the foothills and even in the Rocky Mountains themselves. 
There were game animals of all kinds, moose, elk, deer, wild sheep, and goats, readily available for us to hunt and to enjoy. The land was vast, beautiful and rich in abundant resources. Our mother earth called us from the forests, the prairies, the valleys, the mountainous areas, the lakes, rivers, and springs. Come, my children, anyone who is hungry, come and eat from the fruits and gather from the abundance of this land. Come, everyone who thirsts, come and drink pure spring waters that are especially provided for you. Everywhere, the spirits of all living things were alive. We talked to the rocks, the streams, the trees, the plants, the herbs, and all nature's creations. We called the animals our brothers. They understood our language. We, too, understood theirs. Sometimes they talked to us in dreams and visions. At times, they revealed important events or visit us on our vision quests in the mountaintops. Truly, we are a part of and related to the universe. And these animals were a very special part of the great spirit's creation. These words shared with us by Dr. Reverend Chief John Snow Sr. from his book, These Mountains Are Our Sacred Places. Thank you. And so the new people gathered in new covenants. There were covenants made between the Nehial and the stony Assiniboine people in the 1600s called the Iron Confederacy. This continues today to be respected as a covenant between the two peoples that we would learn together, share together, live together, and marry together. Treaty making was part of our DNA. The role of the church and the RCP agents of the state were pivotal in giving assurance that the tribes would be secure, but the tribes were also hesitant. I'll have the next scripture reader come up. Reverend John McDougall was a significant participant in the treaty negotiations according to Lazarus Wesley. In Cree, not Stony, McDougall told them about the treaty, that money would be given out, that weapons must be laid down. McDougall told them, make peace and the queen will look after you. The Stonies agreed, saying that they would no longer fight if the police would protect them. McDougall convinced the Stonies to attend the treaty discussion by promising, come to Blackfoot Crossing and you will receive money. McDougall made it sound urgent. They were told they, they would be fed there. Bear Spa had initially answered that he would rather fight than sign the treaty. But Christian Stonies said it was wrong to make war and that peace was good. It said so in the Bible. So Bearspaw was finally persuaded to give up on his idea of fighting the newcomers. The Mounties were being offered as protectors of peace and would see to it that there was no more horse stealing and killing. In addition to promising peace through the treaty, 
Commissioner Laird had said, you will live a comfortable life. I will look after you. You will not go hungry. And this is from the true spirit and original intent of Treaty 7 from 1996 and Treaty 7 Elders and Tribal Council, uh, page 79. Thank you. And so these promises are what held the glue of our country together, the relationships and why the wars were able to cease and why we were able to move forward. Here, I'm gonna have the next reader come up to read this next portion. Here we start to see that racism and discrimination quickly overtook the mandate of the government with programs of restriction penalties for practicing ceremony and culture, loss of status of voting, military conscription, and becoming educated. For each one of these, you would lose your status as an Indian person, as an indigenous person, please. Indian Commissioner Edgar Dudney declared in 1884, a year of considerable unrest, that Indians must accept the supremacy of the white man and the utter impossibility of contending with his power. In the seven or eight short years since the treaty negotiations, government thinking had moved far away from any notion of real partnership, let alone kin relationship envisaged by in Indian signatories to treaties six and seven. D.J. Hall from Treaties to Reserves, the Federal Government and Native Peoples in Territorial Alberta, 1870 to 1905. So as this, these uh, instances became embedded in our uh, culture, we will fold these blankets over so that we can show that there's a restriction happening. So all those that were helping with the uh, blanket folding, if you could come forward. And then go ahead with the next portion. It's on, he just has to switch. Go ahead. The school system imposed on the Treaty Seven Nations, as well as certain other governmental policies, might be seen as evidence that the Canadian government simply wanted the First Nations people out of the way. The emerging Anglo-Canadian elite was so concerned with its own interests that it was unwilling to make new institutions and policies work properly to the benefit of the Indigenous people. Underfunding, incompetent officials and racial stigma were the issues that the First Nations had to deal with in the post-treaty era. From the true spirit and original intent of Treaty 7, 1996, Treaty 7 Elders and Tribal Council. So as we see that we are folding these blankets in half, as we would do in a regular uh, blanket exercise, these are laid upon the ground and we are standing upon them. We are folding them and showing that the land base of the Indigenous people is being cut in half over and over again because of these restrictions. And so we see that uh, the Indian Act imposed restriction for movement, meaning you could not leave the reserve or trade goods. You were not allowed to hunt, so starvation overtook many nations. And disease. My family comes from the Sharphead First Nation, which was a nation in and around Pigeon Lake, just north of uh, Red Deer. 
And that reserve ended up being dissolved because of disease. And so there were, at times, more than 100 people dying from the community within a, a given time frame when they checked in with them. And so you had mass death happening, and many of the, the families there took their children to different communities. Some went west of Edmonton, some went to other Stony Nations, and some came down here to Morley. So our ancestor came down to Morley, and we grew up in the family uh, there, were married into the line of chiefs and the line of uh, leaders in that community. And so I'm going to turn to everyone to fold those blankets one more time, as we see here, that uh, we can show there is better, there's different restriction happening. So please fold the blankets one more time. And we'll have our fourth reader come up. This is, I just want to say a bit before that, as we understand the residential school era, what had happened was, since these relationships were broken, there was a time when we needed to uh, obey what the government was saying. So what began as a uh, benevolent way of being together suddenly became a coercive way of being together so that the children were taken out of the homes in the 1930s and were forced to go to these schools. In there, all their rights were taken away. Their hair was cut. Their language was taken away. Their culture was taken away. And so they grew up not learning about their traditions, not learning their language. When they came back to the reserve, they couldn't talk to their elders. They couldn't talk to their family. They couldn't talk to their parents. And so it was a difficult time for everyone. Please, go ahead. The basic problem, we realized, was to rebuild the shattered, stony tribal society. This would require facing the harsh realities of the 20th century, rather than agonizing over what might have been. They would need to contend with the institutions of the dominant culture, but they did not have to adopt their colonizers' values or behaviors. In other words, we came to realize that it was not an either-or choice. Acculturation to the dominant society or clinging to our old ways in a world where they could no longer offer us and our children a good life. We came to understand that there was a third way, the way of biculturalism. From James Treat, Around the Sacred Fire, Native Religious Activism in the Red Power Era. We came to understand that we could still follow stony tribal custom, but at the same time, adjust to a technological age on our own terms. Our hope was, and still is, to retain the best in the stony culture and to take the best in the dominant culture. Reverend, Dr. Reverend Chief John Snow Sr., these mountains are our sacred places. So what we hear here, and I'll have the um, people bring the blankets back up, is there are changes that have occurred uh, with Canada's admission into the United Nations and the different changes that had to occur in human rights. There was a necessity, and I'll have you just put them around the circle, that Canada would have to start to address its issues. And we also have at that time uh, other social movements that were occurring. So the idea of the um, Vatican II, 
which opened us up to a more ecumenical stance between the churches, between the denominations, to try to learn from each other and have a more invested outreach. And so as we come together in this space of understanding, we bring those voices back into this circle. We bring those understandings, looking at what we have done since the 1970s. So in the 1970s, we had the uh, first ecumenical conference in Browning, Montana, and then we had the next one come, or it was in uh, uh, Billings, Montana, then it came up to Morley at the invitation of my father, bringing together spiritual leaders from the Christian faith and from the indigenous spiritual realm to come together to share and to start to rebuild connection and understanding for one another and to impart that wisdom back into our traditions, into our youth. So this idea of opening up and giving back is very important, that remembering becomes an important part of our circle and how we today see the elements of this circle abound with our relationships. And so we have here the three nations of the Blackfoot Confederacy, as we named, from the Tsiksika, the Pikani, and the Kana, the Stony Nations of Chiniki, Wesley, and Good Stony. We have Métis Nation number three, and we have space here for the settler population to come around this circle to remember our teaching. In this circle, this is our medicine wheel, we have our sacred bundles, we have our sacred teachings, and this is opened up to understand where we are, how we are located in this space, to be one with one another, and to share our teachings that we might learn and have a depth of understanding of where we belong and how we belong in this space. And so I give you thanks for the opportunity to come here to share, and we will turn to our next hymn, Many and Great. This is a hymn that is a Dakota, traditional Dakota hymn, uh, first brought by the uh, Methodists into the uh, Dakota tradition and created for them. This song, created in the 1860s, is important because there was an uprising in the, that was called the Dakota War. And in that uprising, we lost several uh, families. Hardship happened between uh, settler and indigenous people. And uh, there, were four, third, there were 300 people condemned to die. And it was Abraham Lincoln who uh, pardoned a great majority of them. So we had 38 that were hung on that day. And many of them were newly converted to Christianity. And they sang this song as their gallows song. And so they remember that there's always a, a part of history in what we do. So let us sing. I'm going to sing that first portion, actually, in our language. And I'll sing this. Cha, wa ka ki he 
And so as we come into this space, this is why we put the, the passing of the peace at the end, because it is through this tribulation, through this acknowledgement, and through our history that we come together in a new way. We come together in a sharing and a benevolence and a hope that we can build together something of a better world as we go forward. And so with this blessing, May you go out into the world, greet one another with love and determination for reconciliation in your hearts. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, Mother of us all. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.